Good evening. France recalls its ambassador to the United States and Australia, and an FDA panel rejects a third dose of the vaccine in a blow to the administration. A general's actions in the fate of the world and Occupy Wall Street marks 10 years. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, September 17th, 2021. In breathtaking news on the diplomatic front, France said late today it's immediately recalling its ambassadors to the United States and Australia. The move comes after Australia scrapped a big French conventional submarine purchase in favor of nuclear subs built with U.S. technology. Earlier this week, the U.S., Britain, and Australia announced a new trilateral security alliance for the Indo-Pacific to counter China. Part of the deal were American nuclear-powered submarines that are not nuclear-armed. President Joe Biden announced a deal two days ago. It's about connecting America's existing allies and partners in new ways and amplifying our ability to collaborate, recognizing there is no regional divide separating the interests of our Atlantic and Pacific partners. According to the French Foreign Ministry, it was the first time France has ever recalled its ambassador to the United States. Meanwhile, a top French diplomat spoke of a crisis in relations with this country, calling Australia's decision to scrap the French deal a stab in the back. And the hits keep coming. A short while before the French government made its announcement, CENTCOM Commander General Kenneth McKenzie appeared before the media to reveal that a drone strike aimed at the supposed perpetrators of an attack that killed 13 Americans and more than 100 Afghans at the Kabul airport last month had gone terribly wrong, killing seven children and two adults from the same family with a Hellfire missile. No Islamic State extremists were killed, as first reported by the Pentagon after the August 29th strike. General Mackenzie says it's a terrible accident. The strike on 29 August must be considered in the context of the situation on the ground in Kabul at Hamid Karzai International Airport following the ISIS-K attack that resulted in the deaths of 13 soldiers, sailors, and Marines and more than 100 civilians at Abbey Gate on 26 August and also with a substantial body of intelligence indicating the imminence of another attack. CENTCOM Commander General Kenneth McKenzie. McKenzie added that the United States would compensate the family for their losses, if that's possible. In more war news, revelations in Bob Woodward's and Robert Costa's latest book, Peril, detail how Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley secretly called a top Chinese general after the January 6th insurrection to assure him that the U.S. government was stable. The story led a famous witness in the impeachment trial of then-President Trump, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, to call for Milley's resignation. The controversy has focused attention on a little-known provision in American law and custom since 1945. The President of the United States has the sole power to use nuclear weapons without oversight or appeal. The Director of Policy at the Plowshares Fund is Tom Colina. He says General Milley did the right thing and shouldn't have to resign, but he adds the incident highlights the peril of U.S. nuclear weapons policy. Milley broke some rules because he was concerned that President Trump was mentally unstable. Uh, He basically thought that that after the election, when Trump lost, um, that Trump suffered a a serious mental decline. And the problem with giving the president of the United States sole authority to launch nuclear weapons is what if that individual, in this case, President Trump, is unfit? Uh, is making irrational decisions. Um, What does a general do who is not actually in that chain of command but can see it happening in front of him?
I think the U.S. policy since 1945, which to me is a is a mistaken, um, you know, outdated and dangerous policy, gives the president uh, that individual that sole authority to launch nuclear weapons. Um, and so General Milley was in an, an impossible situation. He could either follow the rules and possibly let President Trump start nuclear war. Or he could break the rules and insert himself in the process. And even though he broke the rules, I think General Milley did the right thing. Could the president go to the next layer of command and say, do it? If President Trump had really wanted to launch nuclear weapons, he could have called the launch officer on duty and given him his order and told that launch officer to ignore what General Milley told him. Or he could have gone and fired General Milley. The reality is that the president, if he encounters someone in the chain of command who doesn't follow his order, can just fire that person. The next person is brought in and president, the president gives his order again. And the president could keep doing that until he finds someone who will carry out his order. It's a policy that's a holdover from the Cold War. Uh, it's dangerous. In my view, it's unconstitutional because it lets the president declare war rather than Congress. And we need to change it. And President Biden could change it tomorrow. The use of nuclear weapons is one of the only places where there are no checks and balances. That makes no sense. The problem today is that the military feels like they're the ones that have to stop a rogue president from starting nuclear war. That shouldn't be the military's job. It should be Congress's job. So why is Emilia a traitor for going to an adversarial country and snitching on the president of the United States? He inserted himself in the process for nuclear use, and that he clearly broke the rules. But calling a general in China, to me, that is what generals are supposed to do. They're supposed to reach out to their, to their partners in other countries and explain what's going on. If China is feeling nervous that President Trump is going to launch an attack on them, and it's not true, it should be a general-to-general's job to reach out and say, you're misunderstanding the situation. Let me tell you what it's really like. I mean, this is the fog of war that personal relationships can help clarify. We don't want to stumble into war by mistake, right? The last thing we want is China to think, that the United States is going to attack them, and so they attack us preemptively to beat us to the punch, right? That's how wars start by mistake. That's the worst thing you want. Wow, it sounds like a giant constitutional crisis, but we're sort of all ignoring it. This same thing happened with Nixon when he was under impeachment. He was drinking heavily, and his secretary of defense at the time, James Schlesinger, thought that Nixon might order an impulsive nuclear war. So he did the same thing that General Milley did. He told his advisors, if the president calls you, check with me first. What Milley did is called, he pulled a Schlesinger, that he inserted himself into the process. It's time to change the laws to bring them up to date with the modern world. There's no guarantee we won't get another president in the future that's unstable. And there's no guarantee that we won't have a general like Milley who's willing to stand up to them. We have to change this policy, bring Congress into it, share that responsibility with civilian entities so it isn't just up to one person. Woodward and Costa's book follows others' dramatic accounts involving Milley, including a book by Washington Post journalists Carol D. Leonig and Philip Rucker, saying the general likened the circumstances around the election to those of Nazi-era Germany. This is a Reichstag moment, Milley told others, referring to the 1933 attack on the German parliament. The book reported... He called it the gospel of the Fuhrer. And in health news, 
Dealing the White House's stinging setback, a government advisory panel overwhelmingly rejected a plan today to give Pfizer COVID-19 booster shots across the board and instead endorsed the extra vaccine dose only for those who are 65 or older or run a high risk of severe disease. The twin votes represented a heavy blow to the Biden administration's sweeping effort announced a month ago to shore up nearly all Americans' protection amid the spread of the highly contagious Delta variant. The ruling came from an influential committee of outside experts who advised the Food and Drug Administration. In a surprising turn, the panel rejected by a vote of 16 to 2 boosters for almost everyone. Members cited a lack of safety data on extra doses and also raised doubts about the value of mass boosters rather than ones targeted to a specific group. Then, in an 18 to 0 vote, it endorsed the extra shot for selected portions of the U.S. population, namely those at risk from the virus. And in D.C., the Washington Capitol Police say they are taking no chances as they prepare for a Saturday rally at the U.S. Capitol in support of rioters in prison after the violent January 6th insurrection, although it's unclear how big the rally will be. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger says it was difficult to say whether threats of violence at the event are credible, but he said that the chatter online and elsewhere has been similar to intelligence that was missed in January. We would be foolish not to take seriously the the intelligence that we have at our disposal. How credible it is, how likely it is, uh, people can make those judgments. But the fact of the matter is that we are hearing hearing some chatter that I think um, would be responsible for us to to plan the way we've been planning and put the precautions uh, in place. And then, but also this is, this is as good a time as any to, to practice this model, this where this regional model where we get help from uh, neighboring agencies where we work in conjunction with the city uh, to prepare for uh, big events. This won't be the, the last time that we uh, we have this kind of preparation for an event. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger. The rally, organized by former Trump campaign strategist Matt Brainard, is aimed at supporting people who have been detained after the January 6th insurrection. Brainard says the group abhors violence against police officers and that Saturday's rally would be nonviolent. Uh, there's been a lot of misinformation out there about this rally. We think that anybody that committed violence against police officers or destroyed property at the Capitol building on January 6th should be given a speedy trial if, if guilty, convicted, and locked up. Our advocacy is on behalf of the vast majority of the people arrested in that event who are not charged with committing violence against police officers, who are not charged with uh, destruction of property. And historically, these individuals who engage in this behavior at the Capitol have been given a slap on the wrist. When Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez stormed the Speaker's office and had a sit-in interfering with government business, those people at worst were arrested that day and released with a $35 or $50 fine. There's a big disparity between the way those people are being treated and these people are being treated despite engaging in exactly the same behavior and facing the same charges. It's not about what they did, but about what they believe, and that's what makes them political prisoners. Matt Brainard is former Trump campaign strategist. About 60 people are being held behind bars out of more than 600 charged in the deadly riot. And beginning September 18, 2001, letters bearing the date 9-11-01 and the words death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great, were mailed to members of Congress and others. They spread fear across the country. Congress was closed down for a period. Then amid this state of panic, the Patriot Act 
was passed. That's a story in the 2009 documentary about the attacks titled Anthrax War by journalist Bob Cohen and Eric Nader. The FBI would claim that Fort Detrick Army microbiologist Bruce Ivins was the sole person responsible for the anthrax attacks. He would die of an alleged suicide, so there was never a trial. Producer Eric Nader says Ivins was nowhere near the technology needed to weaponize the deadly anthrax spores, and the, the case remains unsolved. Ivans didn't have the access to the materials necessary to create the anthrax powder used in the attacks. When Army scientists and FBI scientists and other investigators look closely at the powder that was included in the letters to Congress, they saw anthrax that literally floated off the slides. That means it was a powerful agent that was aerosolized, that could float through the air and thus be ingested into the lungs where it becomes quite deadly. Basically, anthrax found in nature doesn't have that, and it had to be manipulated in a laboratory for that to happen. And in order for that to happen, to get to that nature, two things had to happen. One, it had to be milled down to something like one or two microns in length, a very minuscule amount. And two, they found inside the anthrax an additive called silica, which uh, basically made it more able to float uh, through the air. The Army forensics people we talked to at Dietrich, who were Ivan's superiors, they said nowhere in the laboratory did Ivan's have the ability to mill the anthrax down to that size, nor did he have the uh, additives uh, necessary. And in fact, uh, all the evidence against him is circumstantial, whatever his uh, mental situation was. So once we found out that the forensics did not prove conclusively Ivan's was involved, it took us into looking at other avenues. What about postal machines? The postal machines are similar to what they use to actually make the powdered form of anthrax. Well, according to the experts we spoke to, that's simply not possible because the spores themselves were ground down to such a fine level that industrial postal service size milling couldn't do. This was a very specialized machine that had to be used. Who would gain from these attacks? The thing is, motive of whoever sent those letters has always been a mystery. It can come from any one of various angles. One, you could have a mentally disturbed person. Two, you could have a politically motivated person from the side which they said Ivan's was coming from, wanted more attention paid to biodefense, and thus you make an attack and you ramp up biodefense. Could come from a person who was disturbed at the government's work in anthrax and that this would put a spotlight on it. And of course, there are even those who said it came from a foreign adversary, though I don't believe the evidence takes you that far. Domestic terrorism. Yeah, sure. You know, basically, if it was sent domestically by a citizen, that's domestic terrorism. Could the right-wingers have gotten a hold of this? White nationalists, white supremacists? I haven't seen any evidence that indicates that. It's possible. To sort of get people to do the war, this was done to pass the U.S. Patriot Act to get people all worked up and to more accept real reduction of their civil rights. 
And it's undeniable what happened in response to the anthrax attacks. The biodefense establishment ramped up. Billions of dollars were poured into uh, biodefense. It was also used um, in the United Nations. Secretary of State Powell at the time held up a small vial of anthrax and said that a minuscule portion of this was used to terrorize America. And Saddam Hussein has um, leaders and leaders and leaders of this stuff, none of which proved to be true. The anthrax attacks following by just one week, the attack on the World Trade Center was a one-two punch against the republic and that it got the public into a kind of a terrorized mood. It was definitely terror in the, in the air and then a vengeance uh, came. We should have woke up from that experience and maybe have been better prepared for what happened in Wuhan. In our book and in the film, we uh, noted the explosion in the handling of select agents and deadly pathogens in laboratories around the world. And we specifically mentioned China and Russia and uh, Israel and the United States and Great Britain and at a time South Africa. It's not too great a stretch to see a, a direct line from the anthrax attacks, the proliferation of these biolabs to events that may have transpired at Wuhan. One of the figures in our film said it's the Wild West out there. There's too much money and professional reputations involved in this area of research to really put a handle on it. Maybe it'll take this COVID situation for people to take a closer look at what's happening in those laboratories. Producer Eric Nader. Anthrax War, which is available all over the Internet. You just search for it, Anthrax War, producer Eric Nader. Features Senator Patrick Leahy, one of the targets of the attacks, telling then-FBI head Robert Mueller, I do not believe in any way, shape, or manner that he is the only person involved in this attack on Congress and the American people, referring to Professor Ivins. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In local news, New Yorkers will be able to avoid jail time for most nonviolent parole violations under a new law signed by Governor Kathy Hochul. The law signed today largely eliminates New York's practice of incarcerating people for technical parole violations and also provides for other reforms. Linda Perry reports. Governor Kathy Hochul now in office for three weeks, working with the City of New York justice reform advocates and Albany lawmakers has swiftly changed the dynamics of incarceration in the city. She held a news conference at the governor's office in New York City and announced changes in the antiquated parole system. She did this by signing the Less is More Act. It restricts the use of incarceration for technical violations. It bolsters due process and it pushes for speedy hearings. It was set to take effect in March 2022, but the governor says she's taking immediate action. The Board of Parole, under my direction, will have 191 people released today. They have served their sentences. They have served their sentences under the dictates of the new less is more, but they shouldn't have to wait for the enactment date. 191 today. Separately from the parolees, we have a combustible situation still at Rikers because of overcrowding. What does that look like? It means there's too many people and too few people to protect them and to guard them. Governor Hochul is also directing that 40 individuals sentenced to at least 90 days be sent off of Rikers Island each day to New York State facilities for the next five days. This will continue on a rolling basis for those eligible. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York.
Thanks, Linda. And today marks 10 years since a handful of protesters united under the banner of the 99% gathered on Wall Street, marched up Broadway, and occupied a stone plaza in the shadow of skyscrapers, housing some of the nation's most iconic financial firms. For two months, Zuccotti Park was home for an encampment of hundreds of tents housing political activists and hangers-on from across the country and around the world. Veterans of the occupation were in Zuccotti Park again today under the watchful eye of top police brass to look back on their movement and discuss the future. We are the 99 percent. 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 The chant was led by public advocate Jumani Williams, one of the first politicians to endorse the aims of the occupiers. Occupy was ahead of its time. All of the things that we're talking about right now, we were trying to get done here at Occupy Wall Street. We were trying to elevate the problems that were going on in uh, Occupy Wall Street. And it says, I saw the sign, capitalism isn't working. It actually is working. It's working for the 1%. And people get very, very rich. You can't have billionaires without having very, very poor people. That's just, the re- that's just the reality of it. I'm proud to be a democratic socialist. I've been democratic socialist for a long time, way back to Maurice Bishop. People may not know Maurice yeah. Bishop. He was the prime minister of Grenada. My family happens to come from Grenada. So these are things I truly believe in. Dr. Martin Luther King, another democratic socialist, is taught to talk about equity, equality, justice, without talking about the evils that are intrinsic in capitalism. Occupy Wall Street is worthy of commemoration 10 years after Occupy Wall Street. I have a button that says Occupy Return Stronger. We still need all of the messages, all of the pressure that people were talking about 10 years ago. The spirit is still here. I'm telling you from being in those rooms, we listen when people make noise. We listen when people make things uncomfortable. We listen when people hit the streets. So don't give up. Keep pushing, keep focusing us. Peace and blessings, everyone. Occupy Washington. Public advocate Jumani Williams. The organizers of today's news conference, city council candidate and Occupy cheerleader Marnie Halasa, says the biggest achievement of the Occupy movement was to introduce critical thinking to politics. Halasa used the example of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who appeared at the Met Gala Monday night in a white uh, dress emblazoned with the slogan, Tax the Rich. Halasa says, where was AOC when the House failed to for, uh, force a vote for progressive legislation? You know, the public doesn't know how politics works and how legislators make decisions. So now there's a, really a critical examination on how that's happening. Um, so, you know, just to, you know, throw some, some of the stuff out there, um, you know, you know, why didn't AOC and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party force the vote on Medicare for all? Um, you know, why why wasn't AOC with the protesters getting beat up outside the Met Gala? You know, instead she was inside, like, wearing her, her dress. Yeah, now, I'll tell you what, she did rock that dress, but I think now, instead of raising awareness, all of this was to raise awareness. Now these legislatures actually have to do something and fight for something. And they're not doing it. That's right. Yeah. That's the one thing that I really see Occupy, for me personally, um, and I think everybody really, like, looking at the decisions that they're making and seeing if they're really, you know, doing something for the 99%.
And Caleb, right from RT, is right here. He's doing all these stories that really, like, you know, really examine this stuff. RT reporter Connor Hicks. But I want to tell you the most brave thing that I saw, one of the most exciting things that I saw at Occupy was there were so many people from across the country. I mean, I'm from Ohio. There were people from, from Texas. There were people from Idaho. There were people from Hawaii. There were people from all over the country. Young folks who didn't have a job were struggling to get by, struggling to pay their student debts, struggling to, to feed themselves, struggling to try and get the dignity of adulthood in this economy that doesn't seem to have a place for the next generation of workers. And so many of them said, you know what, I am going to leave. I'm going to leave my old life behind. I'm going to get on a Greyhound bus. I'm going to get on an airplane. I'm going to get on a train. I'm going to drive up here in my pickup truck, and I am going to make my life count for something. I am going to engage in political action. I am going to take a stand against Wall Street. And they came up here, and they slept in tents. They came up here, and, and they, it was pretty dirty up here sometimes. You know, it wasn't the most fun place to be. They, they slept on concrete. They slept in a sleeping bag, and they said, I am going to take a stand for something. I am going to believe in something. I am going to sacrifice for something. I'm going to be part of a cause that is bigger than myself. I am going to believe in something. I'm going to sacrifice for something. I'm going to get arrested for something. I'm going to get maced for something. I'm going to get clubbed for something. And that's beautiful because it's yes. that kind of initiative that willingness to make sacrifices, that willingness to go out and struggle, that's what's always changed the world. You know, as much as Occupy Wall Street started on this day 10 years ago, I would say Occupy Wall Street really didn't start 10 years ago. Occupy Wall Street had already started when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was marching through the streets of this country building a campaign against poverty. I would say that Occupy Wall Street started back in the 1930s when workers occupied their factories demanding Amen. jobs and education and union rights. I'd say that Occupy Wall Street started back when the Wobblies and the IWW were taking to the streets and, and organizing the unemployed. I'd say that Occupy Wall Street, uh, you know, it, it got started when John Brown and the abolitionists occupied Harper's Ferry. I'd say that Occupy Wall Street, uh, you know, it had been going at the time that people were demonstrating for the rights of women and their right to vote. I'd say that Occupy Wall Street has been around for a very, very long time. You could say Occupy Wall Street, you can go back thousands of years. Some people say maybe the first Occupy Wall Street was when Jesus Christ drove the money changers out of the temple. Perhaps that was the first Occupy Wall Street. But Occupy Wall Street has always been around. It is part of the human spirit. It is part of the drive in human beings to sacrifice, to struggle, to build something better, to believe that they can leave the world better than it was when they came into it, to believe they can make a contribution, they can stand up to the powerful, they can sacrifice for the cause of right. Occupy Wall Street has always been around within the human spirit, and Occupy Wall Street is not dead. Occupy Wall Street is alive. It is very, very alive. People are struggling. People are organizing. People are fighting back. People are dead. Occupy Wall Street is alive. It is very, very alive. People are struggling. People are organizing. People are fighting back. People are resisting. They are refusing to accept the low-wage police state and the high-tech dark ages that Wall Street and Silicon Valley and London are trying to impose on the world. Humanity is rising, humanity is resisting, and Occupy Wall Street is alive 10 years later. Thank you very much, folks. And that's Connor Hicks from RT. Ago, and finally, 
Doris Deether, the iconic Community Board 2 member and ally of Jane Jacobs, died at her home of more than 60 years in Greenwich Village yesterday. Deether was in her 20s when she moved to New York City nearly 70 years ago. Her upper-class parents were shocked, especially when Deether's dad was approached by a prostitute. Deether worked with Jane Jacobs, battling arch developer and Parks Department Commissioner Robert Moses, who wanted to replace neighborhood tenements with high-rises under the rubric of slum clearance. Deethers went on to head the committee to save the West Village eventually forcing a rare defeat on Moses. Deether never gave up her activism, even while feeding pigeons in Washington Square Park. Doris Deether was 92. In related news, David Amram will perform a tribute to Doris Deether at the Village Trip concert this Saturday at 8th and McDougal Streets from 1 to 6 p.m. Amram 90 will do his tribute to Deether starting at 3.15 p.m. And that's some of the news for Friday, September 17th, 2021. The news produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.